So I wanted to bring today's topic to the podcast, talking about sleep and sleep apnea. So first of all, with sleep, we work with our one-to-one clients for months to really optimize their sleep. And a lot of people come to us with infertility and infertility diagnosis. And when we ask them about their sleep, they have disrupted sleep. They could be waking up multiple times during the night, having a hard time falling asleep, having a hard time waking up in the morning, feeling tired all day long. So sleep is the cornerstone of good health. I think we all know that. And, and also it impacts your fertility. So looking at, at sleep is just is something, a topic that I really wanted to dig further into. And also another one that's coming up lately, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about it as well, is sleep apnea. So we're finding with our one-to-one couples, some of the couples are actually, um, when we're doing a sleep study and digging further into the sleep, they're actually, they actually have sleep apnea. And a lot of times we think it's just men that have this, and that's not the case. So it could, it could impact women as well. And if you're snoring, to really dig deeper as to why you're snoring and what's going on, because that can be impacting quality of your sleep. So there is a cool app that is recommended to dig into uh, sleep on the, uh, in the podcast. So listen in for that. And really, uh, if you're snoring and your sleep is not optimized, this is an episode for you. And it's like super educational and really some major aha moments that uh, I know that you'll have. Thanks for listening and feel free to leave a review on iTunes. Hey there, I regularly speak with five to 10 couples per week who are struggling to have their baby. And although we want to help everyone, we only have two spots available per month to work with us. So the supercharger fertility discovery call is for action takers and really people who are ready to move forward so they can finally have their baby. And if you're not ready and you wait, the risk is you'll need to wait two to three months for a spot to open up. So if you're seriously considering working with us, go to fabfertile, F-A-B-fertile.com and click on book a free call. Then you'll be all booked in and ready to spend 30 minutes to give you the action plan to getting pregnant naturally. That's fabfertile, F-A-B-fertile.com and click on book a free call. Going to bed at the same time is very important. I think in today's world that takes discipline because we have lights and and bright lights and computers and you know in the old days that was taken care of for us it got dark at most we had the light of a fire so we we had to go to sleep Um, our melatonin levels were right everything was right welcome to get pregnant naturally where functional medicine and natural fertility solutions will help you get pregnant and have your baby Hey everyone, I'm Sarah Clark, and my mission is to inspire, motivate, and empower you. And most of all, I want you to wake up. So with functional medicine, we can discover what causes infertility and eventually reverse the condition. Today, I'm welcoming Dr. Mark Burnhand to the podcast, and we're digging into sleep, sleep apnea, and why this matters for fertility. Mark Burnhand is a doctor of dental surgery and knows that the mouth is the gateway to health and the rest of the body. He's the author of the number one bestseller, The Eight-Hour Sleep Paradox, as a practicing sleep medicine dentist in Sunnyvale, California. Dr. Burnham has been practicing dentistry in the greater San Francisco area for over 30 years. He's a TEDx speaker. His advice regularly appears on media outlets such as CNN, CBS, Yahoo Health, the Huffington Post, Prevention, the Washington Post, and Men's Health. He received his degree from Dugani School of Dentistry in San Francisco and is a member of the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine, Academy of General Dentistry, American Academy for Oral Systemic Health, and Dental Board of California. Dr. Burnham, affectionately dubbed Dr. B by patients and friends, is passionate about helping people understand the connection between oral and overall health. 
He also spends a lot of time educating patients and readers about the importance of healthy sleep. Check out his website at askthedentist.com. And before we jump in today's show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this to make sure you never miss an episode. Hey, Dr. Brahana, excited to have you on the podcast. Hi, Sarah. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, awesome. So if yeah, if you could share your journey as to how you came to do this work. Uh, it's probably a pretty standard story, perhaps. I mean, my, my dad was a very well-known physician. I grew up in a family of never seeing my dad. I mean, I, that's an exaggeration, but he would work Saturdays. He was a radiologist, very well-known. Uh, he invented interventional radiology. But the point is that um, at dinner time, I would get all these stories about who he helped, you know, and how you know, the state of medicine at the time and what he was able to do and how it was different. And he was a diagnostician and uh, he used, uh, you know, he was the first to bring a CAT scan and MRI to the West Coast in the U.S. And so to me, it was fascinating. Um, and there was always that sense of, you know, the job of a doctor was to teach and then to make someone's life better. So I was always very proud of my father, but also very comfortable with that notion and, and also very familiar with it, thinking that this is how you do it. I mean, there's just no other way. The, the problem, the complication was that his shoes were too big to fill. And when it came time to make decisions in college about what to do, I actually started out as a history of art major. It was actually up in Canada at UBC. And I was having a great time, loved it. Um, and, uh, you know, but there was always that pressure, you know, Mark, you, you've got to have a profession and being a physician is the best. It's absolutely the best. And, you know, not wanting to go to medical school and say, Hey, are you related to that Berhenna? And, and uh, that was actually consciously what I was thinking, but then dentistry came along and I, it was really something that filled the, the need or the, the need to help and, and to be a diagnostician and, and to be a sleuth and detective and find root causes and all that, that, that was clearly already there. But dentistry really surprised me. Um, I was not a regular uh, dental patient. Uh, we just went as needed. Thankfully, I had pretty good health uh, as a kid. Um, and I, I got my first big cavity in college. I was exposed to dentistry there. Not in a great way, of course. Um, and then I took a personality test. Back in those days, we didn't have the internet. Um, we had these big cumbersome CPM uh, machines uh, with big seven and a half inch floppy drives. And so I took the personality test uh, that was tied to, um, you know, uh, uh, professional, you know, what, what to do kind of thing in your life. And, and I was very surprised. Uh, number two was dentistry and it really floored me. I had, it just never occurred to me that that would be something I could do. I was always very good with my hands. As a kid, I would take apart clocks and put them back together cars bicycles. I had a bicycle tuning business in when I was 10. <laughs> um, so, so that's when I started. It was at UBC. I started taking pre-dent classes, got into the club, the pre-dent club, and then, you know, the rest is history. So, and I was so pleased that I did because it was perfect. Uh, there was, there were no famous Berhenas in dentistry, so that wasn't a problem. Um, and to me, it was absolutely fascinating. And, and each day it becomes even more fascinating. In fact, in the last 10 years, I mean, dentistry is, it, dentistry has a tough role uh, ahead of itself because um, of the oral microbiome and the connection between, you know, oral systemic connection, what happens in the mouth happens in the body. So that's been very exciting. So I'm very, very glad that happened. And I'm thankful to my dad for introducing it to me, you know, the, the healthcare aspect of it. 
but uh, I think I'm glad I didn't become a physician. So, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting the journey how it takes us, right? As you say, taking that personality test and then going, wait, what is that doing there? And then just right. following it, and next thing you know, it was it was a complete cool. surprise. Yeah. So I wanted to, and I was trying to you beforehand, I wanted to have you on the show because uh, to talk about, and people might think fertility, dental health, why is this even like a correlation? Again, in, in, in with we, we don't focus on the infertility diagnosis, we look at the whole, the whole body. And part of uh, looking at this actually, uh, today we're going to be talking about um, sleep and how dental health can be important. Because a lot of times we're seeing um, couples and the male partner actually, and, and we're gonna talk about your story too with, with, with this, um, but the male partner is sometimes coming up with, with sleep apnea and, and how this is missed and how that impacts the whole body. So we're gonna kind of dig into sleep, but so why is dental health so important for getting a, a good sleep? Let me back up a little bit. Why, why is a dentist speaking about sleep? Um, we, we are great at catching it decades before a physician, and, and that's all I'm gonna say about it. There are a lot of things in the mouth, and this gets back to dental health, there are a lot of things in the mouth that tell us early on that this person, this patient may have sleep apnea. But in terms of dental health, important for getting a good sleep, that's an interesting question. I'm usually asked the opposite question. Um, and so, but it's a great question because, yeah, if you don't, I mean, if you don't have good dental health, a lot of things won't happen. Uh, what are the direct, I mean, what are the direct effects of dental health to sleep? I think the first thing that popped into my mind was diabetes or insulin resistance. Um, you know, there is a connection between gum disease, periodontal health, um, bleeding gums, deep pockets. A lot of people are familiar with those terms. Hopefully that, that it, there's a connection with that to, uh, gum disease and insulin resistance. So if your blood sugar levels are, are all over the map or, or you're having issues with that, that is actually one of the, um, most common interruptions in your sleep. Uh, let's say you go to sleep, you, your blood sugar levels are, stable, but because you have some insulin resistance or, or you've been eating a lot of carbs at around two or three in the morning, um, your, your blood sugar levels will drop and, and your body will wake you up. It has no choice. It's, it's almost the equivalent as to interrupted breathing. In other words, if your body stops breathing, it will wake you up. Your body has this, the base of the brain is, is idling. It's active when you're in deep sleep or approaching deep sleep. And it'll wake you up when some, when it thinks something is wrong. So, and so yeah, so that's a big deal. Cardiovascular disease, the connection between dental health and cardio, cardiovascular disease, uh, because of that, because of the gum disease connection to heart disease, you may have to be on meds. Meds make it difficult to sleep. Um, uh, the whole mouth breathing thing, uh, you could get a lot more respiratory infections if you're not sleeping properly. Uh, you know, with your mouth closed. Um, but uh, dental, and I'm referring to mouth breathing as part of oral health. In other words, if you have an issue in your oral side of health, that is you can't breathe your, through your nose, then that will have an effect. Um, um, that will have an effect on sleep. So if you didn't develop properly, if you have a narrow arch, if you can't close your lips properly, if your nose is is uh, has a deviated septum that's part of the oral cavity essentially then that will uh, affect your sleep and and uh, so so oral oral health and sleep are connected in so many different ways that was a hard question for me to answer because again I'm, I'm asked you know 
how does good sleep affect dental health? So I, I thought that was great though. Yeah, actually, I just yeah. want to circle, circle back to the deep pockets because I think, of, and I'm finding this with some, some of my friends now and people I talk to, this the deep pockets and then getting that grafting of the, what, what is that called technically, the grafting of the uh, deep pockets then to help that because of the, because of the receding gum line. Gums. Well, they're, they're related. Uh, there's a connective tissue graft surgery um, that helps. Uh, it's a grafting of gum tissue from the palate to different parts of the mouth to cover the, receipt, the, the recession. It's a little bit more complicated than that. There's a, there's a zone of connective tissue of gum tissue that is attached to the jawbone. And that acts like a seal. That part of the tissue is part of the biological width, we call it. It is a seal that prevents bacteria from entering the body uh, because you've got these bony little protuberances coming up, teeth. It's the only part of the body where you've got things coming out of the I get, for the lack of a better term, inside of the body to the outside of the body. Fingernails are different. They sit on a nail bed, on a piece of tissue. Um, so teeth are a, a, a potential gateway to bacteria, to bacterial infections. And so that tissue is very important. And as we get recession, you start losing that tissue. If it shrinks below two or three millimeters, then you need a graft. You need more tissue to be kind of stapled onto that area so it's rigid and it, and it keeps its seal. That is kind of related to deep pockets. Deep pockets are the sulcus or the crevice around the tooth as it pokes through the gum. A normal pocket, that little moat or crevice is about two to three millimeters deep, but the bottom of the pocket has a, a collagen fiber network, and if that starts degrading, the pocket gets deeper. And a deep pocket can harbor different bacteria, bacteria, more anaerobic, more virulent bacteria, because there's less oxygen further down there, and then also you start getting bone loss, the bone senses that uh, de degradation of the collagen fibers. And then you get you know, loss of teeth, mobility of teeth, and you get a chronic autoimmune disease uh, uh, with lots of inflammation that can send inflammation throughout the body. And that is the, that is, we can talk about the mechanisms, but that is the disease most of us have. I would say the majority of North Americans have gum disease. That's a safe bet. It, if you look in the literature, it's 50 to 70%, depending on how you read that. So that's anything from gingivitis to severe gum disease. And that's, from there, the connection between gum disease and fertility is, is an interesting one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to sort of dig deeper when you have this big yeah. gums and if you're getting yeah. skin graft, like, well, why? And right. But the grafting, the grafting is from grinding, loss of gum tissue, recession, overbrushing, it's the gum disease. It's that bacterial infection of the sulcus or the pocket, that little fold or moat around the tooth. That's the big one. That's the one that causes inflammation, has hormonal effects throughout the body, can create, can um, lead you to insulin resistance, cardiovascular disease, dementia, uh, respiratory infections, pregnancy complications, uh, premature birth and low birth weight. These are all kind of things that are connected to uh, gum disease. Um, it's it's uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, it's oh, oh erectile dysfunction. Let's let's not blame the women here. Let's let's yeah. include the men here, right? There is a connection between that and erectile dysfunction um, and low sperm counts. So so it's a, it's a major aspect. Uh, oral health and particularly gum disease um, is a major aspect of of the discussion um, when it comes to fertility, raising children. Um, but also your own health, heart disease, brain, brain diseases, brain health, cognitive function. It's, um, it, it, 
it really needs to be part of the discussion. And unfortunately, medicine and dentistry have diverged. Back in the 1800s in the U.S., the physician said, you know, um, I'm not blaming the physicians. It's a longer story than that. But they just said, you know what, you, you do your own thing. We're, we have a different philosophy. We're going to go this way. And so dentistry and medicine have been apart all those, all those um, uh, decades, centuries, actually. That has not been good for the patient. The, the discussion about oral health and overall health, it, it has to be one and the same. And I think I think we've been taught in school, or we we know sort of that taking care of our oral health is important. But I don't know if we really know all the connection. I definitely don't think people that I've spoken to that are struggling with infertility would ever think of looking at their oral health. And I think there are a lot of dentists that you know wouldn't consider it. I mean, it should be on our form. Are you planning on getting pregnant? That should be on our dental form. It's on my dental form. Uh, a, I mean, a we want to know if we should be taking X-rays or not. Obviously, if conception is 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 if they're trying to conceive the couple, then you don't want to be taking x-rays, but it should be more than that. It should be, well, before you conceive, let's make sure there's no perio. If there is perio, you don't want to conceive until that perio has been addressed. Okay. So let's dig into uh, the oral microbiome. We talk a lot about leaky gut here. So the, in the, the importance of gut health, but what is leaky mouth? Right. Well, that is a term I think that was uh, designated by a woman by the name of Cass Nelson Dooley. And the reason I bring up her name is she just published a book. I'm halfway through it. I'm glad she did. We interviewed her on our website about four or five years ago. We really told her, listen, you've got to write about this because the oral microbiome, even three, four years ago, was almost unheard of. Uh, the book's name is Heal Your Oral Microbiome. Yeah, she, she coined that term. Um, and it's leaky I mean, the mouth has always been leaky, right? When you take a homeopathic medication, you put it underneath the tongue, sublingual, and everyone knows that, oh, that's how it gets into our, my body. It absorbs past the mucosa, the floor of your mouth, and it gets into the bloodstream. So in that, in that context, you know, that there is a, a way to get things past it. But leaky mouth, let me back up. The oral cavity, you know, that would be the, the teeth, the biofilm of the teeth, the tongue, the cheeks, uh, that includes the nasal passages, the back of the throat, the pharynx, uh, all those areas are part of the GI tract. Um, and some would call it the headwaters of the GI tract. And there are trillions of bugs uh, and, and a lot of viruses and fungi in the mouth, just like the gut, although it's a lot different in the mouth because the mouth is open. It's exposed to the outside environment. So it's, it's, it's a harsher environment in a way. It can dry out, for example. If you do a lot of talking, um, if your mouth is open all night, then there'll be pH changes. There's less saliva. Things dry out. Then things can get very wet. Um, you've got a lot of food coming in there. You've got a lot of chewing going on. There's a lot of variables in the mouth um, where the gut is more of a closed system. However, half the bugs that are in the mouth are in the gut. And I think the average human swallows over a billion bugs a day. So, yeah, so the bugs in the mouth are feeding the gut. And so if you talk about the gut microbiome, it's important to talk about the oral microbiome because where the mouth is feeding the gut, you better have the right bacteria um, in your mouth. For example, there are a lot of, uh, just to illustrate this, there are a lot of uh, physicians that are treating for the H. pylori bug, you know, the, the one that can, can, is involved in gastric ulcers. And what they may not realize, um, but it is in the research, uh, that the H. pylori bug is 
on the teeth. It's found in the biofilm on the teeth. So if you get rid of it in the gut, boy, you better have gotten rid of it in the mouth because it can reseed the gut. So that's the connection. Uh, the two are interconnected uh, and they uh, one feeds the other. And so that headwater, that gateway, it, it better, uh, you know, it better be, um, it better be addressed and it better be fine-tuned for the for good oral, uh, sorry, for good gut health. The, the, the biome, the oral microbiome is fascinating. Um, it, it's to, to me as a dentist, who've got no training in it whatsoever in dental school. And I've talked to dental schools and, and there's mention of it, but that's it. It's really something that has been under treated. We've been carpet bombing. I, I hate that term, but it's very descriptive. We've been carpet bombing our mouths with mouthwash, mm. with alcohol, with pesticides, with soaps, detergents, emulsifiers. I'm talking about basically toothpaste and mouthwash. And, and so we've been destroying and disinfecting and disrupting this this organism in our mouth this this biome and if it's connected to the gut I, I can only imagine what we're doing to the gut so thank goodness now with with this book uh by nelson dooley uh with a lot of other new studies that are coming out we've we've cataloged the whole oral microbiome or, or most of it it's becoming very apparent that that's the wrong way to go about these uh, uh, about treating the mouth. So the mouth functions well on its own as long as you don't interrupt what it's doing. And that's what toothpaste and mouthwash are doing. So it's, and, and diet, of course, diet has, has an effect as well. What we eat, if we eat a lot of carbs, that's going to change the ratio of bacteria to each other, the colonies of bacteria uh, in the mouth, even, even yeast. Uh, you can get a yeast infection just by eating a lot of carbs. Um, yeast feeds, I mean, we, we have yeast in our mouth, that's normal. Uh, we have the albicans, candida albicans in our mouth, but it can become, it, it can, you can create a superpopulation of these yeast cells um, just by eating the wrong foods. If you're eating a lot of junk, a lot of carbs, a lot of packaged products, a lot of wheat, flour, pretzels, crackers, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not excluding candy, but everyone knows that candy is bad, but a lot of people may not realize that a saltine cracker is, is just as bad, almost as bad as candy and, and you're feeding those yeast cells. So if they become dominant, you've got a yeast infection. I mean, an H. pylori and yeast mm -hmm. function very well together, then you've got a whole different environment in your mouth. So, so the oral microbiome is fascinating. It's miraculous. Um, it really has to be treated better and we have to study it more. Yeah, and we see this regularly. So we, we do food sensitivity testing, um, hormone testing for the Dutch, and then we use stool testing so then using the GI map. And we regularly see um, uh, both couples actually because H. pylori is, is highly uh, transferable to, to partners, even your dog, if you're kissing your dog, the dog yes. you're giving it back and forth to you. And so, yeah, so we're seeing and then in the stool, um, uh, fungal overgrowth as well, and then treating the H. pylori first. And yeah, we talk about using brushes, making sure that you're changing your toothbrush out, or then dipping it in. What do we say? Uh, if we dip it in either. You can do um, the like an essential oil, or what's the other one that you dip it in? The hydrochloric something. Oh, I don't know. Fantastic, because that would like blow the toothbrush up. But it's yeah. like to disinfect it, so you're not then keeping to keep brushing in there. But yeah, so you talked about the. Um, so the yeah, an H. pylori that could live in the dental cavities and then keep getting reinfected. How? What's, what would we do there? Well, uh, in fact, the strep mutan bug, which is the big cavity bug, it's not the only one, but it's the one that gets all the credit for creating cavities. It actually works in tandem with uh, yeast very well. So uh, if you have a big yeast infection, you, you better be wary of cavities. Um, 
um, yeah, it's um, it's an interesting. It's just we're just finding out about all this. It's it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you've had like I did, and people, all the people that I'm speaking to, um, antibiotic use, which then can increase the propensity for fungal infections, and then also uh, long-term uh, hormonal birth control, which again I was on, and a lot of people that I speak with too. So again, those sort of connections. And then as far as sleep, so we work with couples for like months on sleep hygiene. Um, we typically say seven to, to nine hours to kind of get in that sweet spot. Everyone has it different, but so what's what's your take on how many hours of sleep that, that, that we need? Right, uh, it's a good question. Uh, and of course, I wrote a book called The Eight-Hour Sleep Paradox, and um, a lot of people find that an interesting title. Um, so you've heard everyone says you should get your eight hours sleep. And that's what I grew up with. And, and uh, so I slept eight to nine hours before I treated my sleep apnea, but now I sleep six and a half to seven hours having treated my sleep apnea. So it's a very complicated thing. There's lots of research out there. There's a study, UCLA study on biphasic sleep. Our ancestors that were sleeping in caves or out in the open, uh, they would sleep as soon as it got dark, they would go to sleep, they would wake up at midnight, look at the stars, make a fire, and then they would go back to sleep. So there's that. Um, there's, there's been a lot of, I think the answer is, is that you need, it, it has to be quality sleep. We're only talking about someone who goes into deep sleep, doesn't come out of it because their airway collapses. How long does that person need to sleep? And I think your body does that on its own. When I treated my sleep apnea, I discovered that as soon as I opened my eyes, Assuming I had a good night, I had zero interruptions, no nocturia, no going to the bathroom in the middle of the night. That to me is a sign that I had apneas. Of course, I measure my sleep at night. I have all sorts of devices. I've had lots of sleep studies. So I know my sleep very well. So when I sleep well, I will wake up before it gets light or maybe at first light. Uh, I do not have blackout curtains. I do wear a cover, a little eye shade over over my eyes but i'll wake up and i can't go back to sleep in other words i'm wide awake i will go from having no awareness at all to waking up sitting in bed for maybe 30 seconds and then just wanting to get out of bed that's a good night's sleep so my body has this station i mean a a well slept body a sleeping a person who's sleeping well uh, will have a satiation response i believe I think your body will hit all the parameters, you know, two to four stages of REM deep sleep. It'll go through all the stages. Uh, the liver repair will occur from 1 to 3 a.m. Uh, second, second wave of sleep is dreaming. You know, all, 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 if, if all parameters are met, your body will just kick you out of sleep and, and, and you'll, you'll awake refreshed. The problem is that most people hear that and they go, well, that never happens to me. And, and that is true. I mean, most of us don't sleep well for a variety of reasons. I mean, we've messed up our environment, epigenetics, uh, facial development, food, diet. I mean, there's so many reasons why we have become very poor sleepers. But so my answer to that would be probably six and a half to eight and a half hours. But I, that's why I wrote the book. That's why I have the title. It's not about how long you sleep. Don't focus on that. It's how well we sleep. It's the quality of sleep that really counts. So I think most people need to go on this journey. I think everyone does. They need to measure their sleep. They need to get a sleep study, even even if they don't think they have a problem. And they need to know what their baseline is because it gets worse with age. And they need to keep working on that. And they need to make sure, here's, here's the point. They need to make sure that their sleep is optimal, that it's what nature intended and then I think the rest will take care of itself. Uh, as long as you go to bed at the same time, 
waking up, I don't set an alarm. I just let my body decide that. But going to bed at the same time is very important. I think in today's world, that takes discipline because we have lights and, and bright lights and computers. And, you know, in the old days, that was taken care of for us. It got dark. At most, we had the light of a fire. So we, we had to go to sleep. Um, our melatonin levels were right. Every, everything was right. So that is the one thing that we have to intervene on in today's society is we have to set that sleep time. I set an alarm to go to sleep. I do not set an alarm to wake up. I let my body decide. So it's six and a half to eight, eight and a half hours. But the, the real answer is let your body decide. It, it can do a good job of it as long as you're sleeping well. And do you, do you subscribe to the, the uh, before 1030 or you get, a, you get a kind of that second wind or that doesn't matter to sort of do it? Yeah. You? Well, I, I'm, I'm a second wind person, uh, night owl, whatever you want to call it, pheno, uh, phenotype, sleep phenotype. Um, uh, that was when I had sleep apnea. So when I had 12 interruptions per hour, I was tired, uh, but I had great adrenal glands, high energy person. But when you're tired, you're tired. So I never gave in to that first uh, getting tired around 9, 30, 10 o'clock. Um, I never gave into that. And then I did get the second wind. And that second wind, you pay for that. There's a cost associated with that. And I didn't realize that, that at the time. Uh, now I, I give in. In fact, I'm dimming the lights by 8.39. I'm trying to stay away from a computer or a TV screen. It doesn't always happen. I'm making sure I have nothing in my stomach. I'm not drinking my iced tea. I'm not having a little bit of chocolate. That all ends at 3 o'clock. My meal is done by... 5.30, 6, 6.30 at the latest. If I have a glass of wine, uh, that's got to be done well before 6.30. And then by 10.30, by 10 o'clock, um, you know, my little text comes up. It says, get ready for bed. That was helpful in the beginning. Now it's automatic. Now that I've gotten into this rhythm, uh, circadian rhythm, it's, it's almost automatic. Uh, when I feel that little bit of tiredness, I just wind things up and I go to sleep. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it it takes discipline to to get the sleep thing right. Mm-hmm, definitely, yeah. Okay, and then as far as so, how long for it, should, uh, should it take for us to fall asleep? A lot of Ooh, fall, the yeah, sleep. Or? Yeah, sleep latency. It's a very important thing. So I've been testing a lot of uh, wearables lately. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the one I have, the one I'm testing. We can talk about that later. The yeah. the one I'm testing now. I think is reading my sleep latency incorrectly. Um, so something that threw me for a loop when I fixed my sleep apnea was I was always very, my, both my wife and I have sleep apnea, had sleep apnea and we were, especially she was, she was very proud. She thought it was a familial trait that it was the, you know, how her family did things and she could sleep on trains, planes. She did a lot of traveling in her, in her career in biotech. Um, so it, that was always a good feature. She could sleep anywhere, anytime, take naps, wake up, feel better. Um, I was the same, but you know, uh, didn't like falling. I, I fell asleep in an MRI unit once, you know, that kind of thing. Um, even though you're anxious, you know, in there. So, so people fall asleep when they meditate, uh, that shouldn't happen. Um, you should be able to stay in, in your state of being your meditative state. You should be falling asleep because that means you're tired. It essentially is a term used in sleep apnea, recording, testing, science, um, and it's a, it's a we, we have a number for it. If you're falling asleep in under a few minutes, that's a bad thing. You should not be proud of that. So when I treated my sleep apnea, that was the one negative aspect in the beginning of having treated my sleep apnea. I went from 12 interruptions to just about zero interruptions, and my latency went up. In other words, it took me 12 to 15 minutes to get to sleep. 
And if you're not used to that, you're kind of like, well, damn, this is, this is not fun. But now you've gotten used to it. It's a nice time to wind down, to think about the day and think good thoughts. And so it's not a problem. Um, so sleep latency is a great indicator. If, if, you can, if you can remember how long you kind of stayed idle in bed, you can work on your breathing. And, and if you think it took 10 minutes or longer to get to sleep, then that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. If you have no recollection, when your head hits the pillow and you have no recollection mm. of when your light, your eyes went shut, you know, lights out, that kind of thing, that's a bad sign. That means you're really tired. You should have gone to bed earlier. You're not sleeping well during the night. You're tired. Yeah, and snoring. Okay, so I I just recently went on a, a girl's trip. I said to the, the person uh, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be with, I said, um, well, this is interesting. I said, I think I'm, I snore. And my husband's like, yeah. And so she recorded my snoring. And she did it just because she's like, Sarah, I think I'm worried about you. Because I was talking to her that I was going to be interviewing you. Um, and just keep coming up to sleep. And she goes, I think you might have sleep happier. Cause, and I heard the snoring and it was just insanely Right. Like chainsaw, I'm like oh my goodness! <laughs> I felt so bad for her, like mortified. But with that, um, and this is common, the snoring. So, what does snoring mean for our health and, and, yeah. and, and fertility? Well, what a great friend! Let me just say, <laughs> what a great friend! Uh, I know a lot of people, a lot of uh, partners feel bad about doing that, or they won't do it, or they're aware of it. I think the worst case scenario is a partner that is aware of their partner snoring. And they say nothing about it or they do nothing about it. I, I think that's, I mean, the sleep partner needs to report on their partner. And because snoring indicates, in a nutshell, snoring tells us that the airway is collapsing. That means you have the propensity or the potential or the ability, I guess you could say, to occlude your airway. In other words, it's collapsing. It's closing. Now, if there's no snoring, that could mean that the airway is completely closed. But that won't last long because your body will wake you up. Uh, so it's usually a combination of snoring and then quiet and then this restart, this kind of snorting sound where the patient wakes up and gains some uh, neural control of those muscles and innervation of the muscles and the, inter and the muscles tighten up a little bit. You may start grinding, bruxing. You may thrash around a little bit, move your legs, and then your airway is open again. So all those things, including snoring, especially snoring, um, are, are serious things. Uh, women start snoring more after menopause. Their uh, progesterone, estrogen, those hormones are protective of the airway muscles. Um, and of course, when those wane, then they, women catch up with men. They, they snore as well, if not better than men do. Um, and I'll, in fact, a lot of the symptoms of menopause or perimenopause even, a lot of those signs or symptoms are related to sleep apnea, like night sweats, uh, irritability. Um, those are actually also signs uh, of someone who has sleep apnea. So it's all related, um, kind of overlapped. So yeah, it's um, snoring. I, I'm glad your friend did that. And I, I would definitely get a sleep study and find out what's going on. But uh, if you see someone snoring, record them. That's what I would say. Take the consequences later, whatever may, may happen. But but it's, a, it's, a, it's an important thing. Snoring, I, we talk about it in our book. Um, snoring was cute for a long time. You know, Bambi snored in the Disney cartoon. I mean, snoring was cute and funny. Uh, snoring is not funny. It is, a, um, it is bad for the person listening to it, um, you know, because it keeps them up. It can keep people up. It can affect their sleep. And the person who's snoring, they have an airway that collapses. They're, they're going to be dropping out of or coming out of deep sleep often. Uh, they won't be able to maintain deep sleep. And they won't have that reparative portion of sleep that is so wonderful and so, so important. Um, now, my question to your friend was, what was she doing up 
does she have insomnia? Well, <laughs> well yes, getting up to the bathroom multiple times. Ah, okay. So it takes yeah. takes two to tango. I would I would record her. I know, yeah. running back and forth. I don't move, right. but yeah, yeah. Um, so, any other warning signs that we want to look for for sleep apnea? Well, um, it doesn't have to be snoring. It can be kind of a wheezing sound. That's called upper airway resistance syndrome. Uh, lighter stage of sleep apnea. A lot of very fit, young, healthy premenopausal women have that. There's a study out of Sweden that was able to measure UARS in I think 49% of those women. Uh, that's just because they're petite. They're eating foods that are inflammatory. Could be air pollution. Could just be simply they're not nose breathing. Um, I think if your mouth is open and you can't breathe your nose, that's an indication that you have some airway issues. Uh, that goes back to if you were air breathing, sorry, mouth breathing as a child, that means you developed your face developed in such a way that you will have a narrow airway as you're an, as when you're an adult. So that's another sign. Are there things in the mouth that we can look for? Uh, like, uh, well, if you wake, for, if the patient wakes up with a dry mouth continually, that means their mouth has been open. That would be an indication. Um, what we look for is scalloped tongue, grinding, bruxism. Uh, these are all things that happen or are the result of that person trying to wake themselves up so they don't, you know, die in their sleep. Um, you know, there, there's uh, even chapped lips, uh, the bite classification, the width of the arch. There are skeletal features that we look for. Uh, but we ask other questions uh, on our on my uh, new patient form. How often do you go to the bathroom in the middle of the night? That is a for me, that was important when I treated my sleep apnea. I thought it was age, and I would get up once a night and go to the bathroom. And now that I've treated my sleep apnea, I realize it was not age. It was related to the apneas. Uh, when you have an apnea, short story, when you have an apnea, the uh, body wants to uh, increase um, or it wants to decrease the blood volume in your system because there's pressure in the chest cavity on the heart. So it fills up your bladder quick, more quickly. So, so having treated my sleep apnea, 99% uh, of the time, I don't go to the bathroom at all. And I, and I love that because I know uh, I've had a good night's sleep. If I do go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, then I know that was a bad night's sleep. I just, that's right away a bad sign. And so then a lot of times we think of it's got to be the CPAP machine, um, but that may not always be the, the case of that. Are there, what are some alternatives? And maybe just if you could just explain the CPAP machine. Well, the CPAP machine is great. Um, a lot of people fear it. Um, I, will, uh, I, I will talk to my patients and tell them that I think that they have sleep apnea and they should see a specialist, an MD, get the diagnosis. Um, and they right away say no to that, especially men because they know what's coming next. Everyone fears the CPAP. It's a machine that creates positive pressure. It kind of, it's, it's like blowing up a balloon, but barely. It's keeping the balloon from lying flat. And it can be adjusted. The new CPAPs are small, they're very quiet, they don't affect, they don't, they're not noisy, they don't keep up the sleep partner. Um, and they keep that airway from collapsing like a balloon. It's a mask, you wear it over your nose, your mouth, both. Uh, they're, hundreds of different masks. You just have to find one that fits. You have to get used to it. It is totally worth sticking with and working on until you get it right because it means everything. I mean, it's going to, it will, it, it's the biggest factor in, in the quality of your life as you age um, if you're not sleeping well and fixing that. So a CPAP is a great, uh, a great device. Um, unfortunately, only 30% of patients stick with it after the first year. And, and the medical system essentially at that point forgets that patient. They just say, I'm fine. I don't need it. I couldn't do it. And they just waste away. Um, dentists uh, and, and most physicians now uh, are up to speed on the oral appliance. 
That could be an adjunct or a replacement to the CPAP. It's what I wear, it's what my wife wears. And that just keeps the jaw from falling back. And if the anatomy of your airway is, is such that this works, it's a, great, uh, it's a great way to go because you're not wearing something on your face, you're not tethered to a machine by your bedside, and you don't have to lug this thing around. Um, it's easy to travel with, and um, it's a, it, it works uh, in most cases. So, so those are the two major methods of dealing with sleep apnea other than surgery. And surgery is a whole different ballgame. Um, and there's lots of, lots of controversy there, although I wouldn't discount surgery. In some cases, surgery is a must. And just back to the oral appliance, is that sort of like a retainer, or what is that? Yeah, uh, there are lots of different versions, uh, too many, I think. There are 20, maybe, maybe a little less than 20 that are accepted by Medicare. And it is, it is a, an oral appliance. It's like a NICARD, but it has an upper and lower section. It, 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 in a nutshell, we have to grab the upper arch, the teeth, and we have to grab the lower arch and be able to push forward or prevent the lower jaw from falling back. And that can be done with struts, pieces of acrylic, little little features or levers that prevent the jaw. When you go into deep sleep, the muscles are paralyzed. Your face, let, your face muscles let go of the jaw. The mandible, the jaw, lower jaw, and the tongue are quite heavy. You're lying on your back. Um, that all falls back and pinches the back of the airway. And the oral appliance, a little bulkier than a regular NICARD, but very comfortable if made properly. Um, it prevents that from happening. And is that something that you fit at your clinic or where, where do people get those? Yeah, it's, it's only available through a dentist. Um, you know, physicians are in charge of the CPAPs, APAPs, diagnosis, surgery, uh, the triage part of it. They will refer to a dentist and the dentist will make these, uh, these devices, but not all the dentists do. But you can, you can there, there are websites that will steer you to a dentist that specializes in sleep. Uh, in the back of our book, we have an appendix of, of resources of where you can go and where you can get these things. Uh, um, uh, including in Canada. Okay, great. And then grinding our teeth. What does that? Yes, bruxism. Well, so they've recently renamed that in the last few years. We, we used to call it grinding, clenching, bruxing, and now we've divided it into two categories because of this more recent development, this connection between airway, struggling to keep the airway open, and bruxing at night. So we now have separated it into two categories based on time of day. Uh, we have daytime bruxing, and we have sleep bruxism. Sleep bruxism is related to the airway, uh, we think. And so if your airway collapses, you're sitting there, your, your jaws limp, uh, you start snoring or you stop snoring because you can't breathe, the jaw starts thrusting. It, it, when the oxygen saturation drops in the brain, the brain senses that there's no breathing going on, no respiration, airway is blocked, it will start uh, it'll start an alarm. It will set an alarm, set off an alarm, and it will it, it will go into panic mode. You're getting a, a little adrenaline release. Uh, it's a fight or flight response, and the jaw is part of that. Um, we see that in brain scans. The part of the brain that is in charge of thrusting and grinding and clenching the jaw uh, is comes off right before the apnea ends. So, is it that the grinding ends the apnea? In other words, moves the jaw forward activates the tongue muscles, uh, the clenching, or even the thrusting back and forth or forwards. Does that help the airway open? Absolutely. Is it related? Is the body doing that to help the airway open? Probably, yes. So people, so in my practice, clinically speaking, when I see grinding amongst, uh, amidst a lot of other signs like uh, scalping tongue, 
high tongue position, uh, skeletal structure, that kind of thing, jaw classification, then I pretty much know that that patient has an issue with sleep apnea. So is it, do I see it in people that don't have um, uh, sleep apnea? Absolutely. In other words, you could be a clencher. For example, I have no wear on my teeth because I clench. I'm a huge clencher. I, I clenched through my, my sleep apnea, so much so that my masseter muscle would lock up and I wouldn't be able to bite on one side, but I have no wear on my teeth. So sometimes we can get fooled because if there's no wear on the teeth, there's no signs of bruxism. But then you have to look at the muscles of facial expression of, of uh, mastication. And if they're overdeveloped, the patient has TMJ, TMD, soreness of the jaw, earaches, uh, bulky masseters that are sore and tender, can't close on one side or the other, wake up with morning headaches. Those are all signs that that patient's clenching. But even a strong clench will open the airway. Is a TMJ which is why I, I don't know if it was maybe not because I think it was more um, clenching I had during university. I remember at one point I couldn't even open my mouth to like put a, put a battle of fry in there. Yeah. What about that part the TMJ side of things? Well, I mean, if someone's clenching a lot, um, you know, at night and bruxing, uh, those people typically have problems with their, their joint. I mean, they're overusing the joint. They may be damaging the meniscus. The, the TMJ joint is very complex. We can dislocate that joint at will. When you shut your chin out or when you chew, that joint is dislocating. It's popping out a little bit. And so to control all that, you need a lot of, um, uh, you need a lot of muscles and tendons um, you know, to control that motion. It's, it's, uh, a lot can go wrong. And if you overuse it and you're clenching and grinding all night, uh, that can damage the joint. Can you just spell, spell uh, bruxing for us? Is it B-R-U-X? Oh, yeah. B, uh, sorry, B-R-U-X-I-N-G, bruxing or bruxism. Um, so you alluded to at the beginning of talking about this antibacterial mouthwash and fluoride. I didn't say talk about fluoride, but toothpaste. Can you talk about your, your take on conventional toothpaste, mouthwash? Yeah. Uh, God, we've, we've gotten it wrong for so many decades. Um, uh, I use the term carpet bombing. Uh, uh, the mouth. Um, most of the ingredients in modern toothpaste and mouthwash are really bad for the oral microbiome. And they can even irritate the oral mucosa directly. I would tell everyone, I tell everyone, we, we write about it in the blog, that there are alternatives, but you have to seek them out. And there seem to be two different attitudes to treating mouth diseases. And the big corporations, of course, are sticking to their guns, although we're seeing some signs of change. Um, you know, some companies are purchasing the smaller ones that are making the good stuff. So stay away from sodium lauryl sulfate. Uh, it's an emulsifier. Stay away from triclosan. Stay away from anything with alcohol in it, ethanol. Uh, stay, away with, uh, stay away from things that have microbeads in it. I mean, there are so many things that we don't need to be using in our mouth. In fact, I would be very cautious of using too much toothpaste. If you have a very good diet, you don't need a lot of toothpaste. You don't want to scrub away with an abrasive toothpaste all of the, the biofilm or the plaque layer. There's good biofilm and there's bad biofilm. The biofilm that coats the teeth, that skin of the tooth, the pellicle, what we used to call the pellicle or the plaque layer, that's there to protect the tooth and to help it remineralize. And even if you did scrub it away with a very abrasive whitening toothpaste, it's coming back. It grows like a weed. It comes back in 10, 20 minutes. Um, and it's there for a purpose. Uh, it's a living organism that coats the tooth and protects it. Yeah, mouthwash, toothpaste, I'm very disappointed that we've, as dentists, have promoted these products for so long. Uh, but we're learning from our, from our mistakes, and most dentists, I think, get it. They get that uh, we have to look elsewhere. Crest, Colgate, all these products, um, 
you know, uh, I would just stay away from that stuff. Uh, it's all this information's online. You can read about it. You can certainly go to our website about it, but it's, it's everywhere. People are getting the idea. They're getting smart. There is a living biome in your mouth and you have to treat it well. You don't want to carpet bomb it. You don't want to blow it up. You don't want to disinfect it. You want to nourish it. Yeah. And you can go to the skin deep database. You can look at your current uh, mouthwash. Exactly. Perfect. What it, Perfect. What it rates. Right. Do, do you have a favorite or anything you recommend? Oh boy. Um, well, I'll tell you, I just, uh, when people ask me that question, I mean, I have no financial incentives here at all. I'll just tell people what I use and it will vary, but right now I'm using earth paste. I like the citrus flavors. I've, I've got some radius toothpaste, um, upstairs. Um, that's a woman owned company. They make a great toothbrush on the East coast. Uh, again, a citrus, citrus, ginger flavor. I'm not a mint person and I don't believe in using mint products before bed because that's a neural stimulant spearmint, mint leaf. I don't want to be woken up. I want to be going down, not up. Um, so I stay away from that. Um, what else? I don't use mouthwashes. I don't think mouthwashes have any efficacy at all. Um, you're just rinsing with something. I think rinsing with water or salt water have the same effect. Um, what else? Uh, toothpaste. Uh, you know what? There's a great toothpaste out there. A lot of people have sensitive teeth. Mm-hmm. They're grinding. They have uh, sensitive root portions, the sides of their teeth. Um, Oh, they've had a lot of damage to the teeth. Those teeth need to be remineralized. They need help remineralizing. There's a toothpaste out there called Boca, B-O-K-A. I have some of that upstairs. Uh, it's a cardamom flavor. It's a little minty, um, but it's a very safe toothpaste. No additives, no fillers, no emulsifiers. Um, it has a unique ingredient. It's um, Instead of using fluoride to remineralize the teeth, this has a nanohydroxyapatite particle. It's a, it's a very small bone particle that the tooth loves and will use as a building block to remineralize itself and strengthen itself and it can prevent cavities. Great. So you like earth paste, radius and boca? Boca. Yeah. So earth paste and radius, I think you can get, uh, now these are very obscure toothpaste. I mean, a lot of people are like, well, where do I get this? And really I've spent a dollar more. I don't use a lot of toothpaste. Use less and use better. Um, so both of those are available at Whole Foods, Amazon, no problem there. Get it the next day. Uh, Boca is uh, direct only. You have to. Um, I, I supply a lot of these toothpaste in my office, but Boca you have to uh, buy direct from them, which is fine. And if you buy a lot of them, you get a discount. So um, that that's a, a you know you have to buy from a website. What's your take on fluoride? It's a massive topic, but oh boy, um, I'm against it. Have been from day one. Yeah. Raised three daughters without ingestion of fluoride. Uh, before Catherine was born, I was out looking for the best way to remove fluoride from our water supply, from our water feed in the house, and bought a big distiller. So, yeah, I'm not keen on it. Topically, it's okay. A lot of my elderly patients, we have a very strong fluoridated toothpaste that helps them prevent getting root canals. And, you know, if I would say to anyone, uh, especially, I mean, you've seen the studies on IQ, and, and if you're planning on having a baby, um, I would not stay away from fluoride. That means bottled water. It's everywhere mm-hmm. and it's easy to get too much. And there was a, I think it's called an overfeed. I think that's the term they use. Uh, a lot of cities sometimes overfeed. They put too much fluoride. It's an accidental overfeed or overseed of the, of the municipal water supply. So you just never know. You can't trust anyone. You have, you, if you want to eliminate fluoride, which you should, uh, ingesting fluoride, before giving birth, you can only trust one person. That's yourself. You have to make your own water. You have to, you have to filter it. Um, 
So uh, I'm against fluoride. Uh, and if you need more information, the best source I think right now is the Fluoride Action Network. Uh, it's a website. And there are a lot of PhD medical doctors, world famous uh, professionals that are not getting too emotional about the whole thing. They're just giving you hard data, hard science, hard facts, and uh, collating and collecting all the studies on how fluoride will have an effect on your child. Okay, I'll have a so fluoride, action, uh, fluoride action, action network. Action network, yep. And as far as sleeping tracking apps, what are your favorite? Uh, well, you know, I like to keep things very simple. Uh, all these wearables and Fitbits and mm. pads you put underneath your mattress. I have probably tried 45 of them. Um, and it's interesting. It's sometimes a pain in the neck because sometimes they don't work. The software doesn't work. Um, I, I will tell you what my two current favorite ones are, and they're not perfect. And they're a little pricey, unfortunately, but there's no, I mean, it's cheaper than a sleep study. And I'm not telling you not to get a sleep study. Sleeps, I recommend everyone get a sleep study, even a child. You need to know where you fall on the sleep spectrum. You need to be able to verify your ability to sleep properly. And I know that's a bit extreme. And the problem there is, is that insurance will only cover that two to $3,000 sleep study, attended sleep study in a clinic, if they think you have it. And that's very unfortunate. So there's a lot of resistance to that. So then back to the wearables. So right now I'm, I'm testing the Aura Ring. Uh, the Aura Ring is my favorite because it's so easy to do. It does not test uh, the concentration of oxygen in your blood, and that's where I like to use the better unit, the B-E-D-D-R, better sleep unit. That's cumbersome, poor software integration with the smartphone. Every morning you have to go through the syncing process. Every night you have to glue something onto your forehead and sync to your phone. Sometimes you wake up in the morning and realize that it never recorded the data, but when it does record data, it's excellent. It does record the SpO2, that's the oxygen concentration in the blood, and it does record apnea. So if you, and that's 100, I think it's $150. The Aura Ring is about 250 to 300, depending what sales they have or discounts. Um, that is a fitness tracker. It does more than sleep. That has a very nice feature with heart rate variability. They, are, they, have, they have more data than I think any other wearable company out there on sleep. And I would love to see the raw data. I would like to have access to that because I know what it means. But I know that for the public, that's not one of their priorities. So their algorithm is just taking averages and rating your readiness to you know, do a lot of work the next day based on how you did at night. And so they, they have some unique data. I just wish they did pulse ox and they don't, and perhaps they will. So those are my two favorites, a um, little pricey. The best, cheapest option uh, would be a Snore app. And there are so many of them. I use Snore Lab and you, you turn it on. I would turn your, turn your cellular portion, go, go into airplane mode. So you don't want to be sleeping next to a phone that's picking up, you know, microwaves and shortwave stuff. And then you, you turn it on and you flip it over and it records uh, your, your snoring and the noises you make at night. Mm -hmm. And you can play it back uh, in segments of, of only what you hear. In other words, you don't have to sit there and fast forward. And it graphs it for you and that tells you a lot, just, just the snoring. Don't get a, a device that tells you more about movement because uh, you, you need an algorithm associated with that. You need to integrate that into other information. The Fitbit does that, I think. It's, it's recording movement, uh, the iWatch, the um, Apple Watch. Uh, you know, it, it's, movement can be tricky, in other words. Um, but just recording your sleep, it's a free app. Recording your noises, what, you, what kind of noise you make at night is very valuable. 
I have patients screenshot those to me and send them to me and I can tell a lot from that. So those are very helpful and that's free. Okay, great. So the Aura Ring, the Better Sleep with Two Ds, and mm-hmm. Snore Lab is the green one. Yep. Um, anything, uh, a success story you'd like to share with us? Oh, gosh. Uh, in terms of what? In terms uh, of sleep or? Um, anything related to maybe, I think you shared with one with me before we started with pregnancy. Oh, right. Yes. Uh, new patient, probably in her early 40s, uh, seemingly very healthy, but she had uh, gum disease. She had perio. It's been a long time since she's seen the dentist, but her fertility uh, doctor, who I have to give absolute 100% credit to, uh, credit to, uh, first thing he said is, I think you may have some gum disease. He was able to recognize it. That's very difficult for a layperson to do, but I can be at a cocktail party and recognize gum disease in a second. I can smell it, literally. Um, but this physician recognized it. Uh, they get no training for this in medical school. He, he recognized it, said, before we start any of our treatment, I want you to go get rid of this inflammatory disease. She did. It took us a year and a half. She was very patient, nervous, you know, because she wanted to get going. She just got married. Her husband was also very um, you know, anxious, and they have twins. And uh, it was just, uh, just when she told us that she was pregnant in the chair. My hygienist was there. I was there just to tears. We, we all started crying a little bit. It was fantastic. You know, did, did it help? I don't know. I, I'm, it, it had a lot to do with it. Um, the connection between uh, perio disease, gum disease, and infertility, it's huge. I mean, there, there are so many mechanisms that we already know and, and recognize. And, and of course, sperm counts. I mean, the whole, the whole thing. You have to be at your best to bring uh, a baby into this world. Uh, thanks for sharing that. And then you have a, a really great website, Ask the Dentist, that has just a, like, tons of information on there. Anything you want to direct them to in particular for them to check out? Well, I, I think to make it simple, I would go there. I mean, my, my, the um, link to the book is there if you have any questions about sleep apnea. Um, uh, and sleep. And it's, it's a very difficult, the, the reason I wrote the book is because when I had sleep apnea, I was just flabbergasted and my wife at how bad the system was here in the U S in the Silicon Valley, how much confusion there was, who do I go to? How do I address it? Address this? What order should I do it in? How does the lack of the ability to nose breathe affect uh, CPAP and oral appliance? There's so much to it in four hours. You can figure all that out by reading the book. I would just go to our website. Um, my daughter and I have had it up for the last eight, nine years. We're very proud of it. People, we get emails every day saying, oh my God, you, you've, you've really made this clear to me. And, 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 and the other part is you, you've really made it very clear to me that oral health is very important because it affects my systemic health. So, so just go to askthedentist.com, start reading. If you have a question, email us. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on, sharing your words of wisdom. I love this topic and just really looking at this whole thing completely differently. As I say, I, think, I don't think anyone would think of infertility and looking at, looking at your oral health. So thanks so much again for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me on the show, Sarah. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I don't know whether you've heard, but I'm offering some spaces in my calendar for supercharge your fertility discovery calls. So this calls for you if you're ready to get pregnant naturally or improve your chances at the fertility clinic. We take a functional approach to fertility. It's the future of conventional medicine. So there's a reason that so many medical professionals who are trying to conceive work with us. The approach is rooted in science. So the call is for both you and your partner. Go to fabfertile, F-A-B fertile, com and click on book a free call then you'll be booked in and ready to spend 30 of the most valuable minutes ever on your fertility so that's fabfertile f-a-b fertile.com and click on the link to book a free call